This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. On the Front Burner puts two no-nonsense culinary professionals on air discussing tough industry topics, interviewing fascinating food personalities, and providing penetrating looks at the industry that we love. We don't always agree and often provide compelling personal insights from a unique combination of life experiences. You know, it's a lively give and take. It's by no means conventional. Elaine owns Sweet Cheeks Baking Company and is a winner of the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Fabulous Cakes. A seasoned industry professional, she is a cake designer and a certified sommelier. Don is a chef, an award-winning journalist, and a culinary educator. Together we take a not-always-pretty, sometimes funny, and always-entertaining look at the world of food and beverage. Hi, I'm Don Williamson. Hi, I'm Elaine Artizoni. Welcome to On the Front Burner. We have some pretty cool guests today, which is always fun. Right. We're uh, looking to talk about restaurants again. That's kind of been the role we've been on lately. We talked about did restaurants make money? We talked about difficulties with restaurants making money, especially in the area of not being able to hire chefs and the shortage of cooks in in the business. We also talked about some ways that are unique in trying to find chefs and and, and trying to pull people from difficult backgrounds and make them chefs. Today we want to talk about how the state and the feds impact the ability of restaurants to function. And as Elaine said, we've got two really great guests today. We've got Stephen Zolesi, who is the President and CEO of the Food and Beverage Association of San Diego. Thanks so much for coming, Steve. Thank you very much. And we've got Mike Almos, who is the owner. And we've got Mike Almos, who is the past owner and chef of Circa, a fabulous restaurant that I've eaten at and enjoyed. And I said past owner. We'll talk more about that later. First, as we begin to talk about laws, a lot of new laws went into effect January 1st, Elaine. You know, it's funny. We hear that there are a thousand new labor laws that get passed on a regular basis in California every year. And I want to ask Stephen about that when we get to it. I find that a dizzying number. And basically the HR people that we work with and um, who we've consulted with have all said there's zero way to keep up. So good luck with that. Right. Um, and this year alone, uh, just January 1st, we've got new laws on plastic straw and styrofoam bans. You can now have home-cooked goods that can be sold to the public. There's a whole new law on sugary drinks and kids' meals, which means <laughs> they cannot automatically put a sugary drink in your kids' meal. Well, I think that's a good thing. Well, it probably I don't know how far is. we have to get into that, but, but my it's gosh. It's a law. Yeah. You know, we've got a law, a ban on CBD cocktails. We've got a whole new <laughs> law about street vending now, so that you can't outlaw street vending. It's no longer a law to sell street food. There are concerns about overtime, alternative work schedules. It's just on and on and on, and those are just new laws for this year. You know, the other thing I want to talk about, some things that are pertinent to um, my own business at the bakery are 
things like overtime and the alternative work week schedule concepts that um, we have found just to be not just difficult for um, owners, but also even for the employees themselves. And I think that these laws get passed and a lot of times the uh, governments are thinking that they're benefiting the employee and, oh, these big, bad business owners. Of course, most of us are making less than some of our employees, but they're really not benefiting the employee all the time. So I want to get into some of those things. That sounds good. And then, and those are new laws we just talked about. We've got old laws that have been on the books for a long time that continue to cause us problems in the industry. Stephen, why so many laws? Well, simply because they can. <laughs> the The legislature is uh, is governed by a supermajority now this year in Sacramento that um, is uh, has a very um, different understanding about what the relationship between an employer, employer and an employee should and is – should be and is. And they uh, find – I think these people don't sleep at night. I think they really <laughs> stay up 24 hours trying to figure out all kinds of different ways that they can – um, come forward with new legislation that is draconian in implementation. It has really done a huge job to change the relationship between an employer and an employee. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It's created a, a, a real um, uh, a conflict between the two. And it, and it, it is very hard to know what you can do and what you can't do because they change things so often. And the other part of this is it's not just the legislature. It's also the courts. So you get a law that's been in place. Like you said, there's a number of laws that have been in place. And then you wind up with court decisions that change the interpretation of those laws and in some cases dramatically change them so that a practice that you've done, you've used for a number of years, is now blatantly illegal. Hmm. Um, Before we go any further, Steve, there may be at least one or two people that don't realize what the San Diego, the Food and Beverage Association does. You want to tell us about that for a minute? Sure. We started out in 1945. We're San Diego County originated, and uh, this is our focus. Uh, We're the trade association in San Diego County that represents the retail part of the hospitality industry, on-sale restaurants, bars, clubs, mostly uh, alcohol licensed but not just alcohol licensed businesses. Uh, We provide HR, regulatory enforcement, licensing, uh, background and support to those businesses, counseling. Uh, We also do all of the training uh, and certification programs that are required under uh, state and uh, uh, federal uh, law. I got to say, this has been the place is such a huge help to us. I know even just firsthand, we um, have consulted with you for HR help and input on the laws, especially you know, like I was saying, some of these new labor um, issues that are going on. And then, of course, anyone who needs to get served, safe, trained for their managers or employees, that's that's where we all go. Great. That's great. Yeah, it's super helpful and all the score workshops. That's how we got started. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, let's take a minute to talk about some of the issues that um, are really on the front burner in terms of restaurants and in terms of food establishments. And I don't think we can start anywhere that's more hot than tipping. Let's talk about tipping, tip sharing, how that law exists, and the problem that it's causing in our industry. 
Well, I'm going to just let me just start with that. And I actually I think Mike's probably going to have some input because I used to own restaurants and we had on a regular basis. The servers, of course, bring in most of the tip money and some of the bartenders and then they would tip out accordingly. And we gave them some indication of what was appropriate as far as tipping out the busser, what was tipping out the, the host, the bartender, maybe your dish station, sometimes the chefs, depending on what the night was. And here, there's just no – you can't make any – there's no When you say here, you mean California. Here in California. I apologize. I, I had restaurants in Colorado. And now you cannot tell them what to do with their tips. You still have to pay them the same amount. So basically a server – and nothing against servers, but it's a team, let's be honest. And you've got everyone making about the same amount of money hourly. And then they're also bringing in probably 10 times that hourly in addition. And don't have to be told that they have to share it when everyone else is their support system to do it. It's kind of – is that right, Mike? Yeah, that's that's been my experience being in the industry as long as I have, meaning over 30 years now. Um, I have experienced during that time uh, the majority of the restaurants voluntarily implement a tip-out program. And yes, you were able to provide some range of what might be an appropriate percentage of the tip, air quotes, pool that would be uh, an appropriate tip-out to a host or a bartender or a dishwasher, as you said, Elaine. Um, When the minimum wage increase program went into effect, um, at the same time, a mandatory management in imposed tip pool program was expressly removed as an option, shall we say. Um, at Circa, I was fortunate in that the, uh, the service staff that we had, all lovely, wonderful people, voluntarily continued to tip uh, kitchen employees uh, as well. And at each year, as the minimum wage increased by another buck or 50, 50 cents, depending on what year we're talking about, they voluntarily increased the percentage that they tipped to the back of the house, um, which kind of assisted maintaining that overall we're one team working together right. environment, which is really, really important for of success, in, in my opinion. Um, the way it impacted on the ownership, the, the P&L of the business itself, the ownership still needs to incur the cost of the hourly wage increase. Sure. And then speaking for myself and my restaurant, the percentage of minimum wage employees on the clock during any particular shift was 75%. That means that 75% of my employees had, in my course of just under five years, experienced a 50% increase of hourly wage. Mm. When I took over, it was eight. By the time we, we – uh, uh, re- regretfully and and uh, shut the doors. It was twelve. Right. Uh, that's a that's a big deal. It's a huge chunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about a normal three percent increase over a year or so, you know, whatever. Maybe and, certain people get more, but for sure. And yeah. uh, you know, the cost of the cost of the overhead for the square footage. That's where we're seeing the normal three percent increase in lease. Um, but having this particular increase was well, it was non-trivial. It had an impact that required some. Out of the box thinking on how does how do we keep the how do we keep the P and L in the black best we can. 
Right. right. And the whole issue there is workman's comp that we're going to get to in just a minute. Exactly right, Don. I mean, that's that part right there. The Not only are you paying more on the front end, but you are paying more on your insurance and on the back end contribution. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. Okay. But I want to back up just a minute, Mike, because we mm-hmm. got off and talked about Circa. And I'd like for you to take just a couple of minutes to tell us the circus story. And it's important to me because I and Elaine and I talk about this sometimes. There is no one I know who doesn't want to open a restaurant or a bar. <laughs> I don't care what their field is, what it is they want to do. Somewhere inside of them, they want to do that. And what happens is people that actually do it, it becomes a passion. It's a love. It's a part of them. Oh, yeah. And I know how that you must have felt opening a place and running it for five years at the high standard that you did. So tell us a little bit about getting in and about getting out. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, you know, there's a there are several uh, adages that apply. The two happiest days are the day you buy it and the day you sell it. <laughs> um, you know, part of here, part here. of that part of that applies for sure. Um, I, I I do miss having having circa um, as the place where I spent the majority of my waking hours. Yeah. Uh, we had a lovely lovely run there. Um, and I don't regret a bit of it. Um, to tell you briefly about the place as it was, it was a very small 50-seater. Everything there was done 100% by hand from scratch. So we did everything from baking our bread to peeling the apples for the apple pie that we made in Little Castle. And where and were you exactly, Mike? We were on the western end of Adams Avenue in University Heights. So it was very much immersed in a small neighborhood. It did not have much in the way of incidental foot traffic as far as its um, um, uh, revenue base. The customers coming in were coming in on purpose. Um, And that was part of its appeal to us. We wanted to be a neighborhood first name basis kind of a restaurant. Uh, and that's what we that's what we put together, and uh, yeah. we had a we had a great time doing it. But because um, the the business itself was on the scale that it was, being a fifty seater and being full service, meaning table service, sure. without the white tablecloth at Circa, but still the labor required, um, the impact of the uh, the um, wage increase uh, affected us greatly. And so, isn't and isn't that interesting? So here yeah. you have employees who were making more money. They were probably making more, you know, they were doing well in tips. They're making now more money hourly and they still lose their job because the business itself can't sustain. Whether that is obviously not the only reason we, we understand, but that's one of the things that's so I think disheartening to me is that a lot of these laws that are coming in are not necessarily in the long run benefiting the employee if their employer cannot stay afloat. I agree with that completely. All during this time, especially in the last, let's say, three or four years of the lifespan of Circa, um, I personally had to maintain uh, independent contracts external of operating the business to uh, create some uh, uh, external cash flow to help keep the doors open. And we, again, I'm going to uh, tip my hat to the the human beings that were part of our team there. Um, the vast majority of the folks that worked there could have made more money working elsewhere. But quite frankly, they could have made more tips and sold more money if they were working at Ruth Chris or someplace where you've got a higher check average and a higher turnover. They were there because they wanted to be there. And that was – 
that was a great positive in allowing us to think out of the box and try to create some type of fair compensation package to keep the restaurant afloat and to keep it an attractive place for our staff to come to work. Because if they don't want to be there, it's awfully hard to create an environment um, in which your guests want to return oh, as course. well. Of course, of um, course. So um, we had to – it. Basically, I had to personally increase the amount of work I was doing external of Circa, which, you know, brought its own impact into my, into my household and quality time with my wife. Um, and then I then I also had to create other types of bonus reward systems for the staff to keep them engaged and to give them the recognition that I, I wanted to give them. So, you know, giving the occasional bottle of wine or a gift card elsewhere or uh, bring your family in, we'll treat you to dinner, not just the traditional half-off employee rate that we were giving, just to keep everybody aware of the fact that we were – we as ownership were grateful for their their efforts and valued them. But all of that had to come from my wallet, personal. You know, it's not like we're pulling from a, uh, a large um, profit margin – or taking out of marketing expense. Right, this or some was, big investors were like, oh, sure, that's here's right. another. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. Another. So well, yeah. the, the, the thing that I found interesting about this whole process is I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for raising a minimum wage. I don't want to come off as anything but that. Um, but I do uh, want to do what I can to create an opportunity for the small business owner to continue to exist. So I, I would be... I would regret seeing a food and beverage environment in which only large-pocket, multi-store restaurant oh, groups have a, the staying power. It's a horrible thought. And yeah. that is what's yeah. happening. As yeah. we yes, look at statistics, yes, sir. it is these chain groups that are able to sustain themselves and maintain where mom and pops – are going out of business. Yes, sir. They keep going in business, but they also keep going out. Steve, you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's with with the ski, the um, what we have to work with right now. Um, it is ever more uh, hard for small operations um, like Mike's mm-hmm. to be able to be successful, um, to be able to compete. There are certain criteria that have to come together. Uh, I, the, the, the magical three points that make a difference. Um, one is a very a superior quality product. Number two is that great experience for the customer. And number three is value. Value is not about cheap. Sure. Value is about whatever, whatever they pay. Did they get their money's worth? And we all experience that. Um, you know, four wheels and an engine gets you from point A to point B. <laughs> and there are cars that are $8,000 and then yeah. – And 800 uh, <laughs> the, the one that was uh, out yesterday, uh, Bugatti, oh, yeah. $19.5 million for a car. And it's sold already. It's amazing. Um, so – you, and, and with all of the, the changes that are going on too, um, smaller operators are inundated with how do you get the, all this stuff done and have to enlist to help to be able to understand what they can do and what they can't do. When it comes to – Mike was referring over to minimum wage increases and it's not done 
Oh, uh, no. Not even close. It's right, going right. to go – it's not only going to go to $15 an hour in uh, 2022, but there, every year thereafter, it will adjust according to the Consumer Price Index. And we've seen this happen in Seattle. Uh, yes. We've seen this happen right in California in San Francisco where their minimum wage right now is up to, I think, over $14 an hour right now. Um, and they have mandatory medical coverage. No matter what the size of the business is, which is impossible, which which is uh, with the state law is fifty or more employees, um, so it makes it that much more difficult. Now, the people who understand this, there are people who are successful in our industry today, continue to be successful, and there will be those people who are successful, and, many, and it, so a lot has to do with how are they financed. If they're opening the door and they have a great big uh, burden of, de of debt on, weighing down on them, they're going to have to do the sprint from the very first day they open up. Mm -hmm. um, and what's their mindset? Where, where are they – how are they prepared to open that business? What have they done to create a positive response? So what kind of uh, social media program – and marketing program do they have? How have they put the business together? Are they in tune with where the market wants to be? We've seen that uh, many new restaurants opening today are very much different than what, what we would – a restaurant that used to be where you would go in and it would be a formal dinner and you would get the soup and the salad and the entree and there would be dessert. Today, people just don't do that. Uh, in general and restaurants are not providing that kind of setting. We're giving them the option to pick a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here and put things together if they want to. And we're also uh, – many of those businesses are creating uh, a, a great experience in their bar, uh, even if they don't have a full bar with spirits, to where they're putting together – they're going back in time and they're looking at all these fancy drinks that used to be used in the oh, 20s and yeah. mm -hmm. the 30s and they're reincocting those – and they're coming forward with all kinds of new combinations. Uh, there are several. There's one group here in San Diego that I think they make in excess of 15 different bitters that are used in making cocktails that they make. Just bitters alone um, to give that special extra. And they're doing a great job of marketing and they're making it exciting. And that really turns out to be the difference in whether you're going to be successful today or not to open a place and just expect that because you open uh, the doors that people are going to come in is just not going to happen, uh, and and um, that is one of the main reasons why businesses fail. Getting back to the tipping thing, though, you know there is a culture in our industry, and there has been in 35 years that I owned and operated restaurants. My culture in the restaurants was that there was tipping back, and it typically was about 20 percent of the of whatever their their tips were, and everybody got tipped, everybody, including in the kitchen. That is still done today, and it is legal mm -hmm. for them to do that today. If a business starts off and sets off with that as, as part of their culture, then employees have to sign on to it, and they have to be part of it. If they don't – Is that even if it's a new restaurant now? Yeah, Are they still allowed to – A new restaurant them? is the best example oh, where you set so it up to, to begin hear. If you were had an existing restaurant and you wanted to change the culture to that culture, you actually have to get a buy-in on the part of the – 
front of house servers oh, interesting. for them to agree to it and mm. whatever that combination might be. Um, and in recent decisions, it also includes the kitchen, which is great. Uh, that's the way it should, should uh, be. Now, there are businesses, though, that have gone the way of tip pooling where all the money that's received from tips goes into one pool and then every it's dished out back to employees depending on how many hours they worked, irregardless of what kind of a job they did. And that can be a real negative, uh, a disincentive for some employees who tend to be maybe a little lazier than other employees and more self-motivated, less self-motivated uh, to be able to do a really good job. So um, – but that that method of tipping then the employees through tip pooling is um, is currently in place. Now that tip pooling can only go to front of house people, can't go to back of house. But right. the back front of house people can then take whatever they receive and back tip. Now separate from that, we've seen businesses institute the um, service charge. Service charge. Mm-hmm. Now service charge is really something totally different. It yep. is not a percentage that goes back to employees. It is for the house to help compensate the house for costs that they're incurring, primarily things that they don't have control over. We have control over our menu, our food costs. We have control over our labor costs. We do the scheduling. Sure. How many hours are there going to be uh, worked within a certain period of time? But other things that we've talked about, the the um, the insurance increases, landlords increases, which have gone crazy in in recent years, mm-hmm. um, to be able to compensate. Now, I get questions on this from the public. Well, why don't they just raise their prices? Exactly. I don't like to see a service charge. <laughs> well, why, do, you, do you make that kind of a, a complaint to SDG&E, to the water bill? Uh, there are surcharges. Do you know that in city of San Diego, if you get a parking ticket, there's a surcharge on it? A whopping one. The I city? got a parking ticket the other day. The surcharge oh, was darn. bigger than the than the violation. And the city of San Diego what? does not tell you about that in advance. There is no warning on the parking meter that they're going to be charging you a service charge. Oh. And Where, it's a state surcharge, so is the state getting money again? So, oh, in, blast! If we want to sur- <laughs> use a service charge in the city of San Diego, uh, according to the city attorney, we have to have a warning on our website, in the business, on the menu, on the receipt, for it to be okay. Oh, but the city of San Diego can put it on that parking ticket and not give you any warning. The government doesn't have to do anything. Steve, you, want you, to wanted to, <laughs> you wanted to jump in on that, Mike? Oh, I did. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a number of – there are a couple of restaurant groups here based here in San Diego that at, uh, shortly after the minimum wage increase began went through a couple of different um, um, machinations in trying to uh, put sur- service charge or surcharge on their menu. You and try to make some type of fair compromise. And I tell you what, I'm sure everyone here at the table is very aware of the amount of negative press that was immediately bounced back from those efforts. But they're still doing it. Oh, and yeah. they brought it up. Oh, they raised it. It's some of them started at 2% yeah. and are now at 4%. And, and I, I got to say, I get it. And oh, there are more yeah. and more restaurants sure. who are resorting to it. So it, it doesn't mean that they didn't and don't increase their menu prices. Right. But 
I believe, and we support it fully, and we get that information out to our members to make sure that if they're going to do it, they do it correctly. Mm. But the really the big message is, people, there are consequences to elections, right? Yes. to votes. And these are part of the consequences. Mm-hmm. And so that service charge are costs that we can't control. They're levied upon us from high above. And we want you to know that there's a difference between what we want to be able to charge you or need to charge you for our menu price and then what we need to stay in business, which is the service charge. Okay. want to go way off the rails here for just one second oh boy. and do a little culture shift. The last time I was in Japan, and full disclosure, that's been more than six years, the last time I was in Japan – I tried to tip, and my server would not accept a tip. I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's bad. I've actually but we seen have, that in hotels here now. But we have a certain culture that we have inculcated that we're supposed to tip, and I think that some of the public thinks it's because we aren't willing to pay our workers what it is they really need in order for them to be able to survive. I'd like to get some reaction to that. Well, I think that's a good – that's probably exactly what a lot of people are thinking. And don't forget, not that long ago, I know for us in Colorado, we were – you know, it was $2.14 an hour for servers Mm -hmm. specifically because they were being compensated with so much in tips. They were still making more than anybody was. But um, these days, they're – you know, these people are making – what everybody else is making. So that's different. And you would think, especially in California, people here, maybe they don't. Maybe they just keep their ears closed. They don't know what's happening with minimum wage. Minimum wage is minimum wage. There is no server wage here, correct? That's correct. Oregon is – was it Oregon? Colorado? I was in Colorado. Colorado is one of the 43 states in the country that allows tip credits against tips for from whatever the minimum wage is. California is one of the seven states that does not allow that and everyone has to be paid the full minimum wage. The word tip is not a word. It's an acronym to ensure prompt service. Oh, I love that. How did Mm -hmm. I not know that? (laughs) And – that's how it came to be, really. When you look back at the origin of it here in in the United States, um, where places like in Europe, they have service charge. They put it right on the bill and they tell you it's 18% or whatever, and that's supposed to be going back to the employees. Um, in Japan, there's a culture that says that's you don't do that. But I think if you were in Japan and you were in one of the large international hotels, that if you wanted to leave a tip, I don't think that was going to – that would be a problem. Probably because that's, that's a – there's a – that's a different place, kind of place. And it's more – it really can be offensive to some people. What do you mean I can't give you a tip? And that would be counter to their – what they're trying to deliver to uh, their customer. But that is the way we do it here. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what they do in Europe or what they do in Japan. This is the United States and this is what we do here. <laughs> well, and then what I'd it. like to have us do then, because one of the things we want to have happen on Front Burner is not just say about what's wrong, but what we can do to make it different. You talked about some innovations that restaurants and owners and, and establishments can do. But what can we do in terms of addressing some of these laws and regulations to try to make some things different for our industry and our businesses? Well, 
that to be able to change the laws or to prevent them from being from happening in the first place is extremely difficult today. Um, I have many times been um, on uh, lobbying trips to Sacramento. Uh, the whole climate has changed there. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get them to understand anything that seems to be uh, reasonable. So really what we're left with then, uh, our devices, is to stay ahead of whatever these issues are going to be. And so we're in the process of rolling out a new training program for front-of-house people that has six components to it, basically. And this is try to ensure prompt service uh, and uh, get back to the relationship between the customer and the employee and try to make that a better experience so that we can get past all that other stuff. And it allows you then to be able to have menu prices that really reflect what they have to be to be able to make a profit. Not what we might, what the customer might think they're supposed to be. Absolutely. Now, the, this training has got six components to it. One is when you come to work, be prepared to come to work. Two is know what your job is. Three is what are your standards for performance? What's going to be acceptable? What's not? Four is, is the guest having a great experience? What is the guest seeing? Not what you're seeing. Five is convey other guest experiences that they have, they can use, that we give. You know, a place, I had this conversation earlier this morning with one of our members who uh, has a hotel, and it's, do your servers engage the customer in conversation about, well, you know, we have banquet facilities here. When are you having a party? We can take care of you. Uh, we have home delivery. Um, we... Uh, can do special dinners when you come in. If you call ahead, give me a call. I, we can put something together for you. Right. Customers have no idea. Right, that, letting them know that, as opposed mm -hmm. to handing them flyers uh, every time. Yeah, absolutely. Of what they, what right. other things that they we right. can offer. And, and then number six is what about? And this is a growing concern. What about impaired guests, mm -hmm. uh, people with special needs, right. um, and special menu? needs gluten free lactose free Vegan. what are we doing to really be able to to capture those people and make them feel like you can come in and you're not going to get sick i mean it's just that simple and we're hoping to be able to roll this out and make it available to our members um and their their staff in their their businesses that's cool do you have a name for it already or not yet um front, front of house, house training, training. <laughs> That's simple. I need Keep it. It Give me a name. <laughs> we'll come up with something you know, for you. You know, another part of that, and, and I just hate to give it up, like, well, the government's going to beat us up and there's not much we can do about it. I I go back to the foie gras uh, debate that we had, and it was pushed through. It was we couldn't do it anymore. And we had chefs going down there saying, hey, you can't do this to us. And foie gras has got to be a minuscule uh, item on most menus and certainly not a profit margin at all. But they fought and got that back. I have to admit, full disclosure again, the courts have once again said we can't do it. But at least we got out there and made that happen. And if we were willing to make that kind of effort on foie gras, 
why can't we do that on something that's crucial to our business? Why can't we mount some sort of effort, some some sort of campaign, get some chefs down there and talk to these folks to have them understand and make it imperative if they want to be reelected that they're dealing with that? Because I think if we could face our public and say, you don't want your bill so high for the meals you eat? Well, then we need not to have the same sort of regulation. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's something we could certainly try. I think you're absolutely right. I agree with you completely. I think that all of the um, options and programs that have been discussed thus far are awesome and constructive, and let's do it. But there's one portion in the original three parts of the restaurant that were described earlier being quality of product, um, experiential in the environment, and perception of value. I'd like to overlay what you were just saying, Don, onto the perception of value. And to me, that's where proactive education of the public really comes in. So prior to the voting opportunity on these initiatives, having some type of um, public forum that allows a prognostication of what the consequence may or may not be so that the public is informed as to what is going to happen to their everyday life. If the minimum wage goes up and the the property value goes up and therefore the leases go up, I'm fine paying another buck or so for my Big Mac because I don't go to big I don't get Big Macs very often. I heard that over and over in the press. Well, it impacts everything else as well, not just the restaurant and the sure. P&L, but the supply chain coming to you. Right. So the the increase has increased everything uh, on cost of goods prior to getting to you. So not only are you um, addressing the increase in one-third of your overhead, the controllable cost of payroll, as, as, as mentioned, but also you have to uh, react to the increase in the cost of your raw goods, regardless of whether or not you're going with organic or local or what have you. All of that has increased um, parallel with the increase of the minimum wage. And this is all fine and good, as long as the public has some level of inclusion into this conversation so they know why that burger has gone from 10 bucks to 12 bucks. I mean, we're fighting in the streets of San Diego for bicycle lanes. We're making that happen. We're fighting with the city. We forced them to have a commission. Things are going on because people got riled about that and wanted to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But right here in San Diego, also a brewery wanted to open a tasting room and the city regulations were so convoluted, so twisted, so turned around that it was cheaper and easier for them to open a restaurant than just to have a tasting room. That's ridiculous. And I think we ought to be doing something about it. Yeah, that has to do with the zoning laws of where a bunch of the breweries are located in uh, Bira Mesa, as we call it. Um, and you know it's the it's the the commercial zoning district there. Uh, one of the one of the entities I work directly with is the California Craft Brewers Association. So you just by luck and chance happen to touch on something I I, I get a fair amount of info on. And yeah, that is that's really a challenge. Fortunately, it's being addressed. Um, I have seen some public um, uh, news articles and so forth. So it seems as though it has been. It has made it to the public airwaves. It's in the ears of those who are looking for it. Um, but as if we want to address maintaining an environment where this small one-off uh, restaurateur has an opportunity of success without a massive funding background, 
then we really need to look at, at the depth of the pocket required. Um, when it, it, Everything, in my opinion, operates like a sine wave. So it goes up, it goes down. Everything's in, in a frequency, right? So we, we enact these regulations that have a fiscal impact, um, and it will be only a matter of time until the general population um, understands and can come to grips with it and work it back into their, their own household income. But that takes a little bit of time. And substitute time to depth of pocket on the part of uh, the of, of the operator. How long can you sustain while the, while cu- while the public's coming to grips? They're going to afford you exactly. And if that happens, doggone it! Round about the same time that we're experiencing a significant um, uh, rental increase, you're seeing the surplus household income, especially in the entertainment budget. Probably the first piece to get you know tightened up on that belt loop. You're seeing that going in the negative direction while the pricing on your menu, as we've kind of discussed, sort of needs to go up. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a tough graph to deal with. Right. Cause you're saying, okay, yeah. you have less money to spend. Oh, and we're going to raise, our and we're going to raise the prices. So and why don't right. you just raise the prices? Well, cause you have less money to spend. Right. <laughs> so right. when you're saying earlier that, um, the style of restaurant that's being opened year to year has also changed and evolved. I ten four, I agree. Look at the the smaller one-offs that are opening now and count how many of them are order here, here's your number. Right. Versus – No full service. Exactly. Well, there are examples of where you can come together and make a difference. So as Mike brought up about the microbreweries, uh, several years ago, there was an ordinance passed uh, by the county and adopted by all the cities in San Diego County. Uh, and we were – I was on that uh, committee to help make this happen uh, with the Department of Environmental Health. Uh, because that's where some the real obstacles were, the ability to serve some food and how they would be licensed and what that would be included and all the costs. And we got that through that passed and through for primarily for the micro uh, breweries and the wineries in San Diego County so that they could offer uh, limited food service and not have to go through all the steps as if they were opening up a regular restaurant uh, to to be able to afford that food and be able to do it in-house as opposed to having food trucks there, mm-hmm. right. which was really their only option Absolutely. Uh, up to mm-hmm. that point if they wanted to offer anything that was really cooked and uh, made to to order. But and getting back to the to the minimum wage, you know, when when this issue comes came over and over again up before uh uh this the state, they have two issue two choices. One was increasing the minimum wage. The other was going in and increasing the earned income credit. Now, earned income credit was never a favorite because it was not hinged by the labor unions to their contracts. Whether you know it or not, labor union contracts almost 100% are hinged to the minimum wage. So when minimum wage goes up, their, their negotiated contracts automatically escalate by the amount of increase. So if they've negotiated $22 an hour and January 1, 20 20, it goes up to $13 in the city of San Diego. All of their contracts automatically clink up another dollar per hour. Mm -hmm. Okay? So earned income credit is really the best way to go because – not just because of that, but because the money stays with the people who are being paid. Under minimum wage, as much as 50 cents of every dollar that they receive – 
the government gets because it increases their tax base, Mm -hmm. especially in California where they have to be paid the full minimum wage. Government makes a killing on increasing the minimum wage. Where are they putting all their money? (laughs) A black hole where they usually put it. It's a sieve. It is. And they don't like the idea that people talk about that. And I think that's what we should be doing. Absolutely. We should be talking about it. And I think that when we look at the number of restaurants that are going in and then going out of business in this city and around California, there ought to be restaurateurs that want to put some pressure on Sacramento, that want to put some pressure on local government. And I just don't see and hear that happening. But we have um, just about run out of time here. Ah, we didn't even get to talk about so many things I want to talk about. Yeah, it's a big topic. It it's is. An endless. We'll, I know it's an endless We'll have to topic, come back huh? and do that. But um, one of the things we want to do more than anything is connect with you. We want to hear with you and what you want on the front burner. We would like to hear your comments, questions, and suggestions. Listen to us on iTunes or on Specialty Produce Network or go to the Chef de Cuisine Association of San Diego website, www.sdchefs.org, and click on Front Burner. You can listen to all our podcasts and you can leave a comment or a question. And I want to thank our guest today for just a great, great conversation. We're going to have to bring him back and, and, and finish talking about that. We want to thank Stephen Zaletsi from the Food and Beverage Association. Thank you so much for being here. It's thank always you. nice to have kind of the, the background legal person as well to talk. And, of course, Mike Almos, formerly of Circa, who is now doing a lot of independent contracting. We'll have to talk to you about that another time as well. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. Yeah, thank you. And so until next time, on the front burner, I'm Don Williamson. And I'm Elaine Ordizzoni. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.